1959, NASA unveiled its inaugural class of astronauts, dubbed the Mercury 7, after a rigorous selection process. From all of the active duty pilots in the Navy, Marines, and Air Force, the service records of 473 test pilots were selected for review. 110 met the basic qualifications. Each must be... These early astronauts were cut from the same cloth. They were all white, middle-class, family men, which many at the time considered to be the touchstones of American virtue. In addition to being these exceptional individuals, they are, they are our knights in shining armor. They are our representatives. They are us, in other words, in this Cold War environment and rivalry with the Soviet Union. That's former NASA chief historian Roger Launius. He says while these astronauts looked like snapshots of the, quote, ordinary American, major sections of the population were left out of that frame. They were often the first generation in their family to attend college. Many of them went to school after World War II on the GI Bill or to the service academies. They were all married. They had children. So in terms of sort of mainstream society in 1959, 1960, the early 1960s, they were a representation of all of us. With obviously the notable exception of no, there weren't any women, there weren't any minorities, and, uh, and that was a major hole in the effort. Was there any thought given to going beyond that kind of white, male, middle-class-seeming person? I understand that they were selected from um, the military, uh, and that obviously limited the number of people they might choose. But was there any discussion of thinking outside the box on this one? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was, there was lots of discussion. I mean, before the first astronauts were selected, there was some talk about, you know, who would be the best in terms of handling small, tight, cramped spaces. You know, maybe sub, submarine officers would be better. There was, you know, acrobatic skills that might be necessary. Maybe somebody from a circus would be good who does high wire <laughs> acts or something. Uh, you know, so a lot of those, those sorts of things were considered and immediately rejected. The one area that was considered in a more serious way but didn't get any, anywhere uh, at the time was, was, the, was the issue of women. There were very fine pilots, and uh, some of them were taken to the Lovelace Clinic on a private endeavor to test and see how they would perform in the same environment that the astronauts had been tested on. And they found that, uh, that many of them were, were quite good at doing the same things the astronauts were called upon. Some of those women really did believe that they were going to become astronauts. And uh, the so-called Mercury 13, 13 women who did as well as the males did uh, in those tests, uh, sort of became a, a cadre and became a public force up to uh, the point where there was actually hearings in Congress about whether or not uh, NASA should have women astronauts. But in the end, they did not do that. To the discredit of NASA, they stood up and said, we do not want to do this. Uh, they sent John Glenn up to Capitol Hill, and he testified how this would in be inappropriate. Later, he recanted that and, and, and said, you know, I was wrong, but it was a different time and place. And uh, the result was there were no women that entered the American Astronaut Corps until 1978. Well, they did select all 
white men, as far as I know. Right. How are they portrayed by the press? You know, it's it's it, it is fascinating to watch. I, I mean, everybody sort of fawns over these these individuals, and when they unveiled the first astronauts in 1959, uh, the seven of them are sitting up behind a table, and they begin to you know announce their names, and and all of the people in the room, and this is a press conference, so they're mostly sort of hard boiled reporters and and uh, and television news people and they stand up and cheer wow and and that, that in itself is pretty remarkable in fact there's a famous uh, exchange between Deke Slayton and Alan Shepard in, in which one of them leans over to the other and says can you believe this we haven't even <laughs> done anything yet and and that's that, that's sort of true but I, I think it does kind of get back to this sort of sense that these are our avatars for this rivalry with the Soviet Union in space, and, and we're going to be supportive of them. So you talked about the reaction of the press corps to the astronauts. How quickly did the astronauts become American heroes? Almost immediately. James Reston, who was a newspaper reporter for the New York Times at the time, was at the the unveiling of the first astronauts. And he wrote in his story about that event, he said, you know, he says, most of us are pretty, you know, hard-headed when it comes to looking at these big events. But when you see these individuals and their boyish charm, their good looks, their contagious enthusiasm for what they're doing, you've got to feel good about it. And in that, in that sense, um, you know, they won over everybody. And those stories that were put out in the newspapers, done on the evening news, wherever, really did bring to the attention of, of, of the public the best things about these astronauts. Mostly they ignored the bad things. And it wasn't until years later that those sort of came out. Yeah, and, and, and just to underscore what an incredibly popular phenomenon this was, I I remember you know, writing to NASA during the 1960s and making suggestions. And as everybody in my family can tell you, I don't know how to turn on my vacuum cleaner. But, you know, this is just something that the a lot of people in the country got behind and felt a part of. Yeah, and it's, it's hard not to sort of uh, feel a part of this when it's sort of on the news on a regular basis. And it's... It, it's at the time of a launch, for instance, there would be sort of a, a, a pause in the day where everybody would sort of watch it on television. When I was in school, they rolled TVs into, usually it was the lunchroom, which was the one place they could get us all into. Uh, and we'd watch these uh, yep. launches on TV. But uh, it, it became a part of our lives in ways maybe NASA has not been since that time. The other thing I'd like to say about this is that in the 1960s, there were all of these weekly news magazines. And uh, my parents subscribed, I think, three or four of them. And, you know, Time and Newsweek and the Saturday Evening Post and Life and Look and so on were all magazines that were popular during the time. And, and Life magazine especially made a big deal out of the astronauts. In fact, they paid a million dollars that went to NASA for the privilege of 
writing the personal stories of each of the astronauts in their magazines. And that, that million dollars then was held in escrow to be paid out in case something happened to the astronauts. It was wow. sort of a life insurance policy. And of course, this is all going on during the escalating war in Vietnam, uh, during right. a very contentious period, to say it mildly, uh, for racial equality in the United States. Uh, how did Americans square the two? Well, they, uh, in many cases, they didn't square them that well. Uh, you know, at the same time that you've got this sort of positive good news story of America's race to the moon, you've got these very historic events, civil rights crusade, the escalation in Vietnam, and the anti-war protests that resulted from that, and so on. And they come together at some level at the time of the launch of Apollo 11 in July of 1969, where Ralph Abernathy brings some protesters of, uh, during his Poor People's Campaign to the Kennedy Space Center to protest this launch. And to the credit of the NASA administrator, a fellow by the name of Tom Paine, reminiscent of the 18th century Tom Paine, but not the <laughs> same person at all, he went out and met with him. And uh, he heard their concerns. And their concerns were, why are we spending money on this? Right. When there are so many needs here on Earth, that is a very valid question. One that NASA struggled to answer throughout its history without very good success. And Abernathy made clear that we don't object to the astronauts and we don't really object to going to the moon, but we do think that we could spend our money better. And Payne, to his credit, said, you know, I, I'm in agreement with you on a lot of this. If I could solve the problems that you have identified by not pushing the button tomorrow to send the astronauts to the moon, I would not push that button. Hmm. But you and I both know that this is not going to solve the problem. You know, I, I would urge you to, to be supportive of this, and I will be supportive of you and your, and your desires as well. We can solve a lot of problems in this nation through our use of science and technology. And that's what NASA's all about. And Abernathy bought that. Uh, Payne then asked him to pray for the safety of the astronauts, which he did beautifully. And then him and some of the members of his campaign went over to the launch and saw it the next day. And in, in response to that experience, and, and it's a moving experience to watch a rocket go up. It's sort of an epiphany in a lot of ways. As, uh, as you see this thing rise majestically in the distance. Abernathy, when interviewed about it, said, you know, I'm as proud as any American about this, but I really think we need to reconsider our priorities. Well, you've actually written about um, a kind of Apollo nostalgia that developed for a bygone era. T tell us about that. What did you mean by that, Roger? Well, I mean, one of the things that, that uh, tends to happen is that um, when we look back on the Apollo era after 50 years, we sort of long for a time and a place that was simpler, where everything seemed more black and white, and you know what was good, and you knew what was bad. Now, never mind the fact that the reality was always different. But that's how we tend to, I think, look at history in a lot of ways. I like to 
to point to um, the sense that sort of white males are in charge and there's not that much in the way of multiculturalism or any of those sorts of things that are so common in our society today. And that somehow, when we think back on that, yeah, things were better then. So does that mean because white males were in charge, things were better? And I can guarantee you that might be the lesson that some people take, but that certainly wasn't true. And so that's that nostalgia that uh, for a time and a place that actually never really existed, but we sort of would like to think did. Well, and a part of the nostalgia may be for white males to be in charge again. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, the counterculture responded to, to the Apollo program sort of with this love-hate thing. They look at these guys in short sleeve white shirts and dark ties and pocket protectors sitting in mission control. And they are the, <laughs> right. uh, you know, they are the epitome of, of the establishment, the organization. Don't, man. don't forget those thick black glasses. Right? Absolutely. And, and they were able to do all this stuff, you know, and, and at some level you have to say, oh God, I hate that society. I, you know, I, I, I want a, I want a culture that is more open and so on and so forth. But then you look back and you say, but God, they really did pull it off. <laughs> you know, they, they were able to land on the moon, not once, but multiple times. And, and so there's something to be said for that. What role did pop culture play in um, this whole nostalgia industry, if you will? Well, I mean, obviously you see it in a variety of settings. Uh, you can... You can see it in the music. I, I mean, think about all the music that has been, and great music that has been made that sort of celebrates space flight. I, you, can, you can start with Rocket Man by Elton mm -hmm. John, and you can certainly very quickly move to a variety of other artists doing really interesting songs. But, uh, and they're all celebratory at some level. And that's one strain of this. There is film that celebrates that tendency. The movie I like to point to is Apollo 13 in 1995 starring Tom Hanks that really does sort of lay out this sort of geeky mindset of how a bunch right. of squares can, can accomplish all this great stuff. And the only sort of counterculture pieces of this that show up in the film is when Tom Hanks's daughter, he plays Jim Lovell in the movie, is complaining about the breakup of the Beatles, which of course <laughs> did happen. <laughs> but <laughs> that's the only thing in which it intrudes. All of the other things that are taking place, and you know, Vietnam, civil rights, uh, the women's movement, uh, on and on and on and on. It's this desperate time and you know, late 60s, early 70s that, uh, that this all plays out in is just sort of lost in that particular story. One last question, Roger. Did you ever secretly want to go to the moon? I, not so secretly. I want to go now. <laughs> I, you know, one of, well, I, I got involved a few years ago in the effort to sort of preserve the lunar landing sites, especially Tranquility Base from 69. And, um, and we haven't had a problem yet, but one of the things that's always happened with historic sites, cultural sites, is that as soon as people go there, they tend to sort of degrade those sites in various ways. Sometimes they do it intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Right. So I've, I have volunteered to NASA that I would be happy <laughs> to be the first curator on the moon. 
to put the ropes and stanchions up around Tranquility Base to make sure that the tourists who visit there, and if someday they will, no question, uh, will be able to preserve the site. Roger Lanius is a former NASA chief historian and associate director at the National Air and Space Museum. <laughs> 